Hello, everyone, and thank you for checking out the study of antiquity and the Middle Ages. My name is Dick Barksdale, and today I'm really excited to bring you a special guest to the channel, Dr. Lackner. He's actually going to be doing an introduction to medieval anti-Semitism, and I'm really excited to have him do this. So, And we're actually going to have him tell us a little bit about himself. So, Dr. Lackner, I'm going to let you take it from here. Hello. Thanks for having me on the channel. I'm excited to do this. Uh, so, as you said, my name is Jacob Lackner. I have a PhD in uh, history. My doctoral dissertation uh, was on the conversion of Jews to Christianity in medieval France and Germany uh, and the role gender played uh, in uh, narratives of conversion and depictions of conversion. Um, so generally, my research focuses on sort of the intersection of Jews and Christians and the interactions they had with one another. Um, so, yeah, that's that's me. All right. So this is an introduction to medieval anti-Semitism, but I do want to sort of have a disclaimer before we jump into it. Um, you know, the things we're going to talk about, uh, I'm going to talk about in this discussion it's going to be a lot of difficult stuff, a lot of really negative things that Jews, uh, that Christians thought about Jews and horrible things happening to Jews. But a disclaimer I do want to say up front is um, while these horrible things did happen and they were a characteristic of medieval Jewish Christian relations, uh, they we shouldn't see them as entirely representative of what every relationship was like between Jews and Christians in the Middle Ages. Um, you know, we'll be talking about a fairly wide span of time. And if you actually put things in on like a timeline, you'll see that there's long periods where these sorts of things aren't necessarily happening. And I just want to make sure we don't focus too much on any sort of narrative, uh, a narrative that um, a famous uh, 20th century Jewish historian calls the lacrimose conception of Jewish history, uh, wherein we just talk about Jew Jewish history as a series of um, persecution. But there's a lot more to it than that. That said, we are focusing today more or less on the negative relationships and negative ideas that medieval Christians had about Jews. Um, and again, those were a major part of medieval Jewish Christian relations. And, but again, just want to emphasize, doesn't mean the entire Middle Ages consisted of Jews being persecuted by Christians. It was something that happened, but it isn't necessarily representative of all of it. So. Before I start talking about the Middle Ages, I do think it's necessary to begin by, you know, looking at um, persecution of Jews before Christianity ever existed. Jews, uh, pretty much, you know, since Judaism really became a distinct religion, um, they are conquered by various peoples. And some of those peoples, especially the Babylonians and the Greeks, um, really take issue with the fact that Jews won't give up their monotheistic religion, practice their religion and adapt their culture. And so Jews, even before Christianity exists, they uh, hold on to what makes them distinct, what makes them different than everyone around them by insisting that they're going to remain monotheistic and believe, you know, practicing Jewish culture, even though different peoples are conquering them and trying to assimilate them into their own culture. Uh, many Jews don't. And that's why Judaism continues to exist. But from pretty much, you know, uh, from ancient times on. There are times of persecution of Jews. It's not something that's exclusive to the Middle Ages. Now, another key distinction I think we do need to make here today as well is how we define uh, anti-Semitism. Um, you know, it's a term from the 19th century that someone coined, a German scholar coined. It's not exactly you know, a term people would have used at the time. It's a term we use to classify things now. And you'll find different scholars who have different ideas. And for me, 
Um, I see a difference between what I call and other scholars call uh, anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. Both are bad. You know, both involve not liking Jews essentially because they're Jews. But there is a key difference between the two things. So anti-Judaism is where the core of what the people are accusing and saying about Jews is they're not Christian. So I don't like them or medieval what Christians would say something like this. That is something that's actually based on reality, even if it is to us a very negative sort of interpretation of Jewish people. Meanwhile, anti-Semitism, it evolves from, for me, it really emerges, as we'll talk about in the 11th century. And the big difference there is it goes from they're not Christian, I don't like them, to they aren't Christian and they're trying to destroy Christianity. So there's a key difference between the two things. One is sort of based on a reality. The other has sort of, uh, you know, a more fantastical edge to it, almost as we'll see conspiracy theory like about Jews uh, you know, doing horrible things to Christians and Christianity. Um, so that's something I want to say up front. So to begin with, you know, let's talk about the, you know, the emergence of Christianity. Um, when Christianity first comes along, it's, of course, a persecuted religion that has a lot of difficulties. The persecution is intermittent, but it's certainly not widely accepted all the time uh, in the ancient Roman Empire. But, um, you know, and for that reason, Jews don't really have to be that concerned with what Christians think about them for a really for, for during that time period when Christianity is sort of in its nascent stage. Um, but there are some things that happen during that era uh, that um, have that play a role in later aspects of uh, what we might call anti-Semitism. And the main thing I want to talk about is in particular um, a Christian uh, bishop named Melito of Sardis, who was a uh, bishop in Asia Minor in the city of Sardis. And he's, you know, this is a time again where Christianity isn't the dominant culture in the Roman Empire at all. But he does one thing in particular that we're going to see recurring as we talk about accusations against the Jews. And that is that he is really the first to straight up say, and he's delivering, he delivers a sermon on Easter in 180, and he says, Jews killed Jesus. He says this outright, which is, of course, not supported by anything in the Bible. And this idea in general, at the time, it doesn't really travel a whole lot because Christianity isn't really, again, the dominant culture. But that idea is going to later, you know, be uh, asserted against the Jews. So once the Romans do become Christian, you know, uh, in the early fourth century, Constantine, you know, starts to uh, make it legal for people to be Christian after he wins the Battle of Milvian Bridge, famously. Um, and then by the end of the fourth century, Christianity is the national religion of the Roman Empire. And now Christians have a problem, what they view as a problem to struggle with, and that is what to do about Jews now that Christianity is the dominant religion. And during this time in the fourth and fifth centuries, um, there are attempted and actual forced conversions of Jews because people think that, you know, this is where we have anti-Judaism, where people are saying you need to be Jew, you need to be Christian, or you need to be exiled, or in some cases uh, killed or in other cases, literally physically carried to the baptismal font and forced to be baptized. Um, and that idea is, you know, unfortunately kind of widespread in, in the fourth century. But eventually we have someone come along, uh, two people really, who come along and they calm things down in terms of Jewish-Christian relations for the most part for, you know, roughly you know, 600 years or so. So 
Augustine of Hippo is somebody who, of course, he, he exists in the ancient Roman period, in the Roman period, but just before you know the Roman Empire falls, late antiquity, I guess, is what we call that. And uh, he, uh, basically everything he wrote has an influence on the Middle Ages. He's one of the greatest thinkers of, you know, Christianity in the ancient, in the, in the Roman period. And um, everything, you know, people cite him all the time for a multitude of different things because he wrote so much. And one thing he would establish is uh, what scholars call either the doctrine of witness or the Augustinian doctrine. Uh, so Augustine, uh, his rationale even up front, what's, what he says is Jews should not be forcibly converted. They should be allowed to practice their religion and largely they need to be left alone. And now his reasoning for this is not entirely ethical. It is partially, you know, he thinks it's not such a good thing that Christians are treating Jews the way they are. But it's also because he sees Jews as a useful missionary tool. When Augustine is writing, Christianity, at least compared to Judaism, is a fairly young religion, and Europe still hasn't been completely converted, not even close, really. And so um, by keeping Jews themselves, keeping them Jewish, um, Augustine can point to them and say, look, they have these ancient books that our books um, eventually fulfill the prophecies of. And by saying that, they add an extra layer of uh, authenticity, of authority to uh, Christianity convincing more people to convert. Additionally, he also wanted Jews to exist in a somewhat lesser state than their Christian neighbors. This is sort of where the witness part comes in. He wants, you know, pagans and others to see that Jews don't have quite as great of lives as their Christian neighbors. Now, um, he doesn't really elaborate on exactly what this means, um, but basically they shouldn't be exactly equal, but Christians shouldn't do mean things to them is sort of the the short answer, and they shouldn't be forcibly converted. This is also because Augustine says there's no real point in converting them. At the end of time, during the apocalypse, they're all going to convert anyway. So just, just leave them alone. And this doctrine becomes sort of the guiding doctrine, especially for the church, for pretty much the entirety of the Middle Ages. There are exceptions to everything. It's a long period of time. But for the most part, the church follows this doctrine. And in fact, uh, starting with Pope Gregory the Great, in 593, uh, he issues the first uh, formal papal bull that protects Jews. Um, and he sort of elaborates, he sort of is putting into uh, law, essentially, into canon law, how Jews should be treated in a practical way, as opposed to Augustine, who in a lot of ways, you know, he was more theoretical. He was just writing. Um, so Gregory says, Jews should not be forcibly converted. Jews should not uh, have to uh, give up their religion. Jews should be allowed to practice their faith however they want to. Um, their graves shouldn't be desecrated. And all of these things are clearly being listed because they've happened, unfortunately. Um, and they shouldn't be molested or killed or any of these things should happen to them. But he also elaborates on how it is Jews are supposed to exist in a lesser state. And basically what he says is, Jews cannot have Christian slaves. They can't be appointed to public office. Basically, they can't be in positions of power over Christians because that would sort of ruin the idea that they're sort of uh, existing in a lesser, lesser state as those who haven't converted to Christianity. 
Um, so, you know, these things are kind of ambivalent, you know, to us today, it's like, okay, they obviously they shouldn't be killed or attacked, but you're making them exist in a lesser state. So yes, you know, this though is anti-Judaism as opposed to anti-Semitism. And the Pope, by the way, also says if any Christian violates these things, uh, they can be excommunicated, which is the strongest weapon the Pope can wield. So he thinks it's a very important thing. And that sets a precedent, again, that goes throughout the Middle Ages. Frequently, popes literally just copy the same exact papal bull popes before them uh, put out there and just send out the same thing as a way of saying, you know, leave the Jews alone. So thanks to Augustine and Gregory the Great and, and the papacy in general, for the most part, between about 600 and 1,000 um, Jewish Christian relations don't involve that many instances of uh, widespread violence or forced conversion. It happens sometimes, and popes have to write letters and crack down on people. But it's not really sort of a, a big feature of Jewish Christian relations during that time. Unfortunately, though, um, as I said earlier, the 11th century is, I think, where anti-Semitism really comes into being, uh, as I would define it, which again means Jews are being accused of things that aren't actually true. Um, and again, sort of a conspiracy theory narrative about Jews and their want to destroy Christianity. So when this first happens for me uh, is in 1026. Uh, and in 1026, uh, word reaches the West that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre has been destroyed. Uh, in the uh, Holy Land uh, at the time, uh, it was ruled uh, by you know Muslims and the Caliph there, uh, a guy named Al Hakim, sometimes called Al Hakim the Mad uh, by people who didn't like him very much. He was an extremist Muslim, which and and one of the first ones we really have actually up until that point. Most and pretty much all Muslim leaders and most Muslim leaders generally were tolerant towards Christians, towards Jews, and just left them alone. It was, you know, part of, uh, you know, this idea of the dhimmi, the the minorities within the Islamic world, but who had religions sort of parallel or close to Islam. But obviously, Al Hakim did not agree with this, and he started destroying Christian sites in the Holy Land, including the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is a complex that contains both where, according to you know many Christians, Jesus was crucified and where his tomb was. It's a large complex. And he destroys the place. Um, word reaches the West, uh, and in particular, a chronicler named Rudolf Glaber writes down that Jews helped Christians, uh, Jews helped Muslims, excuse me, destroy the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And, you know, this is the first time we have an accusation where it's being said that Jews are going out of their way to destroy and harm Christianity. Now, the reason we know this almost certainly isn't true is because Al-Hakim also destroyed a lot of Jewish holy sites. He didn't like Jews and he didn't like Christians. It doesn't really make sense that Jews would help him destroy a Christian holy site. And for that reason, you know, we think this is the first time where Jews are really accused of trying to destroy Christianity. And luckily, in this case, it doesn't turn into a, you know, really um, widespread sort of thing. But in southern France, especially in the city of Limoges, uh, Jews are expelled from the city. Uh, some Jews are killed and others take their own lives rather than let themselves be killed by Christians. So this is the first time where we really have one of these events happening, where Jews are accused of something and something bad happens to them. And that's at the beginning of the 11th century. 
At the end of the 11th century, we have another, unfortunately, more widespread instance of what I would call anti-Semitism, where Jews are being accused of something and killed for it because they are a threat to Christianity. And that happens uh, in 1096 uh, with what is commonly called the People's Crusade, um, which was sort of an unorganized aspect of the First Crusade, left earlier than it was supposed to, um, and was made up largely of peasants, not the nobility that we really think of as involved in the First Crusade. And uh, these less organized bands, uh, one led by Emiko of Floheim and the other one led by Peter the Hermit, um, they take it upon themselves to uh, massacre Jews in the Rhineland, especially. Um, and we have Hebrew chronicles uh, of these events because they were so um, frightening. Uh, thousands of Jews are killed along the Rhineland. And at least according to our Jewish sources, uh, it is said that, you know, they sort of explain the motive. Uh, and the Jewish, the, one of the Hebrew chroniclers writes that one of the Christians says, um, we're killing them uh, to avenge the death of Christ. And generally, the idea seems to be Muslims and Jews, which we've already seen were connected somewhat in the first instance of what I would call anti-Semitism in Limoges related to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Muslims and Jews are enemies of Christianity, and they're both problematic. So in a way, it seems like crusade ideology and this ideology that another religion needs to be attacked, which was, you know, the Pope calls for this crusade, of course, because uh, Christians are losing territory there, especially the Byzantine Empire. It's dangerous to make a pilgrimage. But either way, he asks Christians in Europe to go and attack non-Christians. And it seems like that idea sort of got muddled somewhere. And uh, Jews become the target of the worst kind of that, uh, the most violent uh, um, attack on them uh, during the First Crusade. But unfortunately, subsequent crusades would have some similar issues here and there. Not all of them, but some of them. And so it kind of becomes clear that people in one way or another are conflating Muslims and Jews as sort of the problematic people. So Jews are attacked in these massacres during the People's Crusade because they're viewed as enemies of Christ who killed him, uh, in the words of some of the uh, crusaders who did that. So, you know, that's when we start to see this big shift in the 11th century. But the 12th century is when things for anti-Semitism really kick into gear. All right. So the 12th century is when we have really come into being the first um, uh, more widespread types of accusations against Jews. And, you know, in the 12th century, uh, in 1144 specifically, is when we have the first example of what we call ritual murder. So in 1144, in the city of Norwich, England, um, a young boy named William uh, was found dead in the woods. Uh, his body had been mutilated and people in that community um, blamed Jews who lived in Norwich, which had a relatively large Jewish community. Worth noting that Jews in England at this time are relatively newcomers. Um, there, you know, there's some debate, but it seems like there was either a very small Jewish population or no Jewish population before William the Conqueror conquers England, and then Jews start coming in uh, from France. So they're sort of, you know, it's less than 100 years after they've really arrived there, and in some ways they're more different from people in England than you know people in France and Italy and other places who've been around Jews longer. So that could play a role in this. But Jews are accused of this particular uh, crime, and it's uh, fairly involved. So 
the idea is that Jews in Norwich, um, you know, according to the accusation, uh, around it's the time of Passover when the boy's body is found, which happens to always be around the time of Easter because, you know, the Last Supper is Passover. So these the holidays are always connected to each other uh, in close proximity to one another. And the idea is that these Jews killed William of Norwich as part of some ritual uh, in order, you know, for um, Passover. Now, it's worth noting, interestingly, even though this is the first recorded case and it's going to be the case that sort of um, sets in, puts into effect a lot of dominoes that result in more and more of these happening. But in Norwich, nothing happened. The accusation was um, doubted and not believed by the local government and nobility who just sort of shut it down. But the reason we have this particular case is because a few years after the murder, a guy named Thomas of Monmouth, a monk, comes to Norwich, which recently has a cathedral as well as a monastery, and he comes there and um, he develops basically an interest. He hears about this story and he starts sort of going back, you know, again, it's a few years later, um, trying to figure out what happened and interviewing people. uh, And he puts together a hagiographical text based on his interviews and, and from what he has heard happened. And a hagiographical text, hagiography means holy writing. So it's a, a life of a saint. So he writes um, a text called The Life and Miracles of St. William of Norwich. And it's based on, again, he wasn't there for when this happened. It's all based on interviews that he did. And the picture he comes away with from interviewing people, some who claim to have witnessed it, is that Jews uh, lured William of Norwich into their home. And not only did they kill him, but they crucified him. Uh, they uh, used uh, thorns to poke his head and stabbed him in the side with uh, a knife. These wounds, obviously, and what's happening are all intentionally referencing Jesus. So, At the beginning, I said we have Melito of Sardis, who says Jews killed Jesus. Now that idea is sort of re-emerging, but in a different way, where Jews are actually reenacting what they supposedly did by murdering a Christian child uh, at Passover. And this text that Thomas of Monmouth has in it even has a source that's a fellow monk who says that he used to be Jewish. And when he interviews this guy, this guy um, reveals to him and tells him, what is the first time we have a suggestion that there's a worldwide Jewish conspiracy, which unfortunately is still a uh, stereotype that exists today. Um, And so basically the idea here is Jews every year gather in Cordova, Spain. Um, Spain had a larger Jewish population, so it made sense, you know, to someone like Thomas of Monmouth, who, you know, lives in England, that, that that's where they would meet. They meet there every year, a representative from every major Jewish community. And he tells him, that his guy that he's interviewing, who's a monk, but a former Jew, he tells him in 1144, uh, I went there and Norwich is, is the city who drew the short straw, which meant that they had to sacrifice a Christian child. So according to this rather complicated conspiracy, every year Jews gather in Cordova, Spain, representatives from every community, and one uh, of these major Jewish cities has to sacrifice a Christian child. And this monkey interview says this is because they believe it'll get them back the Holy Land eventually. So Obviously, all of the this accusation uh, isn't really uh, there's no real evidence for it. You know, William of Norwich interviews people who swear it happened. But it's important to note he doesn't interview the nobility or any of the people who were actually the decision makers when it happened. 
he seems to be interviewing, you know, regular people in the community who believe this story. Um, and, you know, even though nothing happens to the Jews here, the fact that Thomas of Monmouth writes this down and spreads it throughout England leads to accusations of ritual murder happening elsewhere. Uh, several more instances happen in England. In 1171, it jumps across the English Channel into France in the city of Blois. And there is the unfortunate first time where it's clear that Jews were killed in association with one of these accusations where it's said Jews, you know, the local the local government says in this case that Jews have to be executed for this crime. So even though nothing happens in Norwich, the fact it's recorded and spreads um, ends up unfortunately costing lots of Jews uh, their lives. And. So, you know, we have this accusation of ritual murder and it starts in 1144 and just um, continues throughout the Middle Ages. And unfortunately, um, some people still really believe it today. In the 1990s, there was a woman on Oprah who claimed she had witnessed it, for example. Uh, you, it's something that also comes up sometimes in Palestinian uh, propaganda that Jews do this with Palestinian children. It's still a part of, you know, society, sadly enough. But, you know, so it doesn't end there. But that's also not the only one of these anti-Semitic, which we can call this now, accusations uh, against Jews. Um, the next one that really develops uh, is one uh, that's sort of just a variant of uh, a change, a slight change, it would seem, to ritual murder. Sometimes you hear the term blood libel and ritual murder conflated, but they're not actually the same thing. In the case of William of Norwich, the Jews are not accused of consuming the blood of the child. That's what blood libel is. It's where the same thing happens, the same basic setup. Ritual murder happens, Jews crucify the child, that's the Christian accusation. But now they're also consuming the blood of that child and baking it into their matzah, their unleavened bread for Passover. And the first time we have this accusation is in Germany, in Fulda, in 1235. And in this case, that's where we have the first time where Jews are accused of blood libel, of consuming the blood of a Christian child as part of this ritual, which has become more complex. Now, you may be wondering, why would blood become a part of this? Well, uh, that's something that has been uh, looked at by a lot of historians and people who study you know, Judaism and, and religion in the Middle Ages. And uh, the theory I think makes the most sense is one that was put forth by uh, a scholar named Miri Rubin, uh, who wrote a book called uh, Gentile Tales, uh, The Narrative Assault on Medieval Jews. And her basic argument points out the fact that in 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council happens, which was one of the biggest church councils, you know, and maybe the biggest in the Middle Ages, probably is. It's in 1215. It, it does a lot of things. It's sort of, you know, like I said, Augustine has ramifications everywhere. So does this council. But we want to zero in on one thing here. And that is that 1215 at the Fourth Lateran Council is when Pope Innocent III uh, made it church doctrine that transubstantiation occurred when Christians, uh, when when priests did the sacraments of um, uh, the Eucharist, which means when they did communion, when they did the ritual for communion, the communion wafer literally, according to transubstantiation, transforms into the blood of Christ. So in 1235, 20 years after this council, when it's been declared that it's church doctrine to believe that, 
which means you're a heretic if you don't. So everyone has to believe it. I don't think it's a coincidence that 20 years later uh, in Fulda, blood is directly connected to what the Jews are being accused of. And what Miri Rubin has argued is essentially uh, internal anxiety about how strange this made some Christians feel that they had to have this new belief in 1215 was sort of projected onto the Jews who were accused themselves of being cannibals, of consuming human blood, because some Christians felt the same way. And so there seems to have been a lot of anxiety about this change in church doctrine. And it unfortunately, you know, manifests alongside, you sort of take ritual murder and combine it with that anxiety, and that's where you get blood libel. And uh, in Fulda, around 30 Jews are executed. Kind of an interesting element of this particular case, I think, this first one, is that it's eventually taken to the Holy Roman Emperor, who is Frederick II at the time. And uh, if you know him, you know that he was a skeptic in many ways, and he did some things that were almost scientific uh, in trying to study certain things. Um, so he was skeptical when they came forth and said, this is what Jews are doing. And so he puts together a panel of people, uh, some of which are former Jews who've converted to Christianity, to investigate the issue. And they come back and they say, this is ridiculous and doesn't make any sense. The reason, one of the, the primary one really, is Jews keep kosher. And Jews can't consume the blood of any animal and be keeping kosher. So how would it make sense that they're consuming human blood? Additionally, you know, they examine the body of this child and things like that. And it becomes clear that, you know, the blood hasn't been drained from the child. And so Frederick II says, this isn't true. Jews don't do this. And he basically issues, uh, you know, a uh, imperial uh, statement saying, you know, don't believe this. If you do accuse Jews of this or kill Jews for this, you could be in trouble. So, you know, this is sort of where you see that the society is a lot more complicated. Not everybody believes this. Uh, it's sometimes isolated incidents. So 1235 is when we have that first instance of ritual murder. And in 1247 is where we have the first instance of another accusation, uh, this one called host desecration. So Host desecration is not dissimilar, uh, and it's definitely connected in some ways to blood libel. In this case, the accusation doesn't involve a child. Instead, it involves a Jew, through one means or another, uh, stealing the communion wafer. So what, you know, the two different sort of narratives you see is Jews breaking into churches and stealing them, and the other one is Jews disguising themselves as Christians and sneaking into churches and stealing the communion wafer. So then what the Jew would take that communion wafer and he'd take it home and he'd do various things to it. Some stories he feeds it to his dog or tries to. Um, there's always a miracle that keeps the Jew from being able to destroy this communion wafer. So in the example involving a dog, the dog bows in front of it and notice, you know, knows that it's something holy. Um, other times the Jew will take the wafer and throw it into boiling hot water. And then miraculously it transforms into the baby Jesus and it's indestructible. Other times, uh, and most frequently really, the Jew is depicted or described in these accusations as just stabbing the communion wafer. Um, and the wafer miraculously bleeds and is undestroyed. So how is this accusation related to uh, the idea of transubstantiation? Well, directly. You know, this, this story uh, is verifying the idea that the body and blood of Christ is represented in that communion wafer. Jews are stabbing it, and just like they're supposedly doing with 
what they're doing with ritual murder. They're reenacting their torture of Jesus by stabbing his body that's been, you know, that's in the communion wafer. And the, you know, the, the Jew who's doing this is always surprised at what happens when he tries to destroy it. And in some cases, he converts to Christianity in these miracles. Um, the first of those accusations, by the way, is in Belitz, which is, is near Berlin. But the most famous accusation probably happens uh, in 1290 in Paris, uh, where uh, there are serious ramifications for the Jews there. Um, and in general, post-desecration, 13th century and 14th century, there are several instances of that particular accusation resulting in uh, massacres of Jews on a greater scale, really, than either ritual murder or uh, uh, blood libel. So post-desecration ends up resulting in more violence towards Jews. And part of the reason for that, I think, is because the church is much more vocal about tamping down accusations against Jews before this. However, there's a lot of concern about transubstantiation and making sure people believe it. And so the church is much less vocal about saying this isn't true. Jews aren't doing this because they kind of like the idea that the story sort of says transubstantiation is fact um, in a way. So, in fact, the the church uh, in Paris um, sends money to create a chapel in, for the post-desecration in 1290 where the host is still there, was still there, and the knife that the Jew used to stab it and so forth. So uh, this accusation, you know, again, it's connected to this new theological idea of transubstantiation and uh, also connected as well to the idea that Jews killed Christ. Um, it's one of the serious issues, if you really start to look at this logically, though, is uh, there's literally no reason Jews would do this unless they believed in transubstantiation. Even if you believe Jews are trying to harm Christ, if they don't believe in transubstantiation, they wouldn't be doing it with the communion waivers. So there's sort of a there's a logical issue at at the core of this accusation. But uh, as I said, the you know from the 1290s on and in the early 14th century, there are massacres of Jews, especially in the Holy Roman Empire, uh, as a result of this accusation. However, the last accusation uh, we'll talk about today against Jews in the Middle Ages, and the one that caused the most widespread violence would come in the 14th century. So in 1346, we have the beginning of plague in Europe, the first really widespread outbreak of plague. And it comes only about 30 years after a horrible famine uh, from that uh, happened from about 1317 to 1322. So uh, actually, that's only about it's a little more than 20 years after the fact. And so people in Europe have experienced a lot of hardship. And in 1346 um, and on, you know, up until about 1350, plague really ravages Europe. You know, famously, one in three people in Europe die from the disease. It's a horrible infection. People suffer terribly and then they die. Um, you know, it has a very uh, low survival rate if you catch it, um, and it's horrible. And people feel uh, like, you know, the world is ending, essentially, because this is such an apocalyptic event, the number of people who are dying. And unfortunately, uh, people in times like that become more, you know, hysterical, for lack of a better word. And people who in previous times probably would have said, and eh, that blood libel thing's ridiculous. Why would I ever believe that? 
you can sort of see some Christians who are trying to figure out why this could be happening to them. Um, and they've heard these stories that maybe they didn't believe before. Well, now horrible things are happening and somebody has to be blamed. And Jews are unfortunately scapegoated. Um, and the main accusation is that Jews travel throughout Europe and are throwing poison into wells. So the idea is water is being poisoned by Jews, and that's what caused the plague, straight up. There's no you know, uh, other explanation. Now, it is worth noting, other people believed it was from divine judgment. Others believe it came from the East, which it turns out is the most accurate uh, as far as we know it today. Most people, I would say, uh, you know, during the plague thought it was divine judgment, and that was the church's line. But a lot of other people um, in very angry mobs believed it was Jews. And um, where this really sort of become, hits a fever pitch, where Jews start being killed on a large scale, is uh, when a Jew named Agamet of Geneva, who is a merchant who's traveling uh, home from Venice, where he's bought some silk, he's traveling back to Geneva, and he's captured. Um, and people are already believing Jews have something to do with it. And he's tortured. And under torture, he says, yes, my rabbi gave me uh, poison. And as I traveled throughout northern Italy and Switzerland, I threw poison in every well uh, along the way. So this accusation, which is um, brought about by the Inquisition at the time, they then take this and spread it throughout Europe. And this results in people, again, with the Holy Roman Empire experiencing the worst of it, it results in people really rising up and starting to uh, attack Jews, who they now believe, you know, it's coming from an authoritative source. They now believe that these Jews are the cause of the plague. And there is sort of another potential reason why people might have believed this, um, and that is that Jews may have died or been infected with the plague at a lower rate than their Christian neighbors. Probably not a lot lower. There are lots of Jewish sources about how horrible the plague is, just like there are Christian ones. But it's possible it was a lower rate because Jews, as part of some of their religious obligations, practice better hygiene than their Christian neighbors. Um, they immerse themselves on a regular basis in mikvahs, uh, ritual baths that you had to do to perform any sort of ritual, uh, important religious ritual. Uh, cleaning the home ahead of the Sabbath is also a very common thing for especially Jewish women to do in the home. And these things, you know, we know now, of course, the plague came from fleas who would bit rats and then bite humans. Those little things could have led to Jews, uh, you know, they had better hygiene and it could have led to them maybe catching the plague at lesser of a rate. But either way, uh, you know, the accusation is entirely based on uh, a confession under torture. And obviously, we know exactly where plague comes from today. So this accusation is very easy to say, you know, it was ridiculous. Um, over time, uh, you know, these all of these accusations um, and that really start to happen in some ways and in indefinite ways, they really do contribute to Jews eventually being expelled from a lot of important um, medieval, uh, a lot of a lot of medieval states. Uh, England expels them in 1290. France expels them for the last time. They do it two times before that, but the last time in 1394. Spain in 1492. Portugal in 1497. There are other things at work politically in a lot of these states, but uh, and, and that's what helps lead to the expulsion. But this increasingly negative idea that Jews are really harming society and they're intent on on destroying it. Christian society definitely plays a role in decisions to eventually expel them. 
So, you know, those are the unfortunate major accusations and their ramifications um, against Jews uh, in the Middle Ages. And we can definitely call those types of accusations, you know, ritual murder, blood libel, um, host desecration and well poisoning. Those are anti-Semitic accusations for sure, because they're not based on any sort of reality. So that's my introduction to anti-Semitism. It was very awesome. That covers actually quite a bit of what I was wondering. Um, wow. Yeah. That is fascinating. I actually, I do have one question about what you did say about the uh, Black Death, maybe not as affecting uh, medieval Jews as bad as non-Jews. Do you think that could also have to do with the more segregated communities? Because I know in a lot of cases, Jews were made to live in like certain neighborhoods, basically. Well, um, it might have had something to do with it, but I will say that actually at, at this point, it wasn't that common for Jews to live in what we think of as ghettos. That's actually okay. a later development, and it mostly happens in Italy. Jews did often sort of there was often sort of a Jewish part of town, um, you know, but usually all that meant was a lot of uh, you know merchants and Jews and other people lived there. But there wasn't really this requirement that Jews live in a specific space uh, back then. Instead, you know, the eventual solution and on local scales too, sometimes the solution was to expel them, not to make them live in a certain place. That's kind of a, it's mostly a later development. Interesting. Okay, good. That actually, that really touches on that. Going through here, I had actually quite a few people who subscribed to me. I gave them all the chance to throw in some questions and I would look at them and kind of decide if, uh, I would ask them or not. One of them I thought was pretty interesting because I've heard mixed reviews on this compared to like the Latin world versus the, uh, let's say the Orthodox world within the Byzantine empire. Would you say that medieval Jews tended to fare well, more well in the East than the West throughout most of the time or kind of hit or miss? I would say mostly, and I am saying this as someone who isn't super close to being an expert on Byzantine jewelry. as a qualifier. (laughs) Um, I would say mostly that Jews in uh, the West were probably better off. I know that um, anti-Jewish laws and things were a big part of the Byzantine Empire as early as like the fifth, sixth century. So Jews become Jews are persecuted on a larger scale in the East earlier. Um, And I feel like the Jewish population, a lot of it actually moves elsewhere to get away from the Byzantine Empire. But again, um, I'm not the most qualified person to talk about Byzantine jewelry. <laughs> no, I, I completely understand. <laughs> I appreciate that honesty. Um, let me, there is one, I feel like it's a pretty, you see it in movies all the time, especially the latest uh, Netflix show on the Knights Templar called Nightfall. And that is Jews being made to wear like the uh, they portray it as like a golden, but in a lot of cases, like a golden star. But in many cases, they had to wear like different types of clothing, so on and so forth. My big question is, how common would that be? And one thing I thought, and it's not necessarily a race bait question, but forcing them. And this also happened in certain periods in the Islamic world, too, not just the Christian one they would make them uh, wear different clothing so they could tell them apart. And I think that's probably because realistically Jews typically resembled their European counterparts during this time, most likely. Would that be correct? Yes. So talking about um, the requirements for Jews to wear distinctive clothing, that's something we talked about transubstantiation at the Fourth Lateran Council. That's something that was also said that was required at the Fourth Lateran Council. 
And Pope Innocent III, you know, in, in the canons of the council, it explicitly says so that Jews and Christians don't end up in sexual relationships with one another because they were concerned about what might happen if a Jew and a Christian, for example, had a child and the complications. And yes, it's because Jews uh, resemble their Christian counterparts. And um, to talk about, uh, you know, um, what it looked like, it, it varied depending on the place. There really were some people who wore something pretty close to what you hear about in the Holocaust, uh, you know, like a yellow star of David. In Germany, it was actually usually a hat, sort of like a flying saucer hat with an antenna on it, sort of a strange looking hat. They called it the Judenhut. Uh, in Italy, it was a circular badge called a rota. Uh, but I will say, um, even though the Fourth Lateran Council says do this, and even though Innocent III is, as argued by most, the most powerful pope of the Middle Ages, not everyone listened. Um, we had lots and lots and lots of papal documents written by popes to Spain, to France, to basically all over Europe saying, you need to be doing this. Why aren't you doing this? And the, you know, the the local people in a lot of cases just didn't see a reason to do such a thing. And the local governments and kings, even, uh, you know, in Spain, especially, it's usually he's writing directly to a king who's not doing it. And, you know, they, it, it wasn't as enforced as much as you would think, um, but it was something that the church wanted to happen. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. I uh, I always thought it was interesting that in medieval art, in so many cases, you know, Jewish facial, facial features, excluding Christ, of course, are typically almost, I don't know if demonized is the correct word, but they're definitely exaggerated to appear almost uh, either less sophisticated or almost evil, if that makes sense. And I always thought it was interesting how that kind of, you know, in real life, obviously, they do not look like that. They did not look like that. But the many medieval artists felt the need to portray that to try to set them apart. And I thought it was interesting how that carried on into like the modern day rise of the NSDAP and Nazi propaganda and how that really I guess, helped create the foundation for Nazi anti-Jewish propaganda, too, which. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the um, especially the, the like massive nose and, and things like that, like that, those characteristics. Yeah, they really emerge in the Middle Ages and they really emerge in the 12th and 13th century during the same times we talked about where Jews are starting to be viewed as enemies of Christianity. And, you know, one thing I didn't talk about that I could expand on more potentially is another another reason people um, didn't like a lot, you know, a decent number of Christians didn't like Jews was also because they had been sort of hedged into having to be moneylenders. Yes. Uh, and this is because of a variety of reasons. Um, you know, the before the crusade, a lot of Jews were actually merchants and they were really exclusively the ones who could travel really throughout the world, China, the Middle East, without a lot of trouble. Uh, European Christians couldn't really do it. And so and and Muslims also couldn't really travel into Christian Europe. So Jews served as this important sort of lifeline for goods that between the Islamic and Christian world for a long time. But then the Crusades happen and the Venetians and others open up. You know, you don't often hear about this with the Crusades, but uh, positive things happen because for Christians and Muslims because the Venetians, especially and the Genoese a little bit too, open up direct contacts with the Islamic world and they hold on to those after the Crusades end. And so Jews uh, don't really have that monopoly anymore. And in fact, they can't really do that job anymore. So there's that. And then also uh, craft guilds are created. And if a Jew wanted to be a tanner or a silversmith or any of those things, he had to join a craft guild, which required a Christian oath so people wouldn't let them in. So 
Jews end up in this sort of awkward niche because also it was illegal for Christians to lend money at interest to other Christians, yes. but it wasn't illegal for Jews to do it. And a lot of uh, the popes even and kings and local rulers um, really encouraged this because it created a credit economy, which yes. has its advantages. Um, but it also, you know, you can imagine uh, during especially hard times thinking, man, I owe that Jewish moneylender. Yeah. Almost all of the moneylenders were Jewish, uh, you know, thousands of dollars and, you know, and having some negative feelings about that that you can maybe see spill over. And but that's also where another key stereotype comes from that, you know, Jews are bankers and moneylenders. And it's like it comes from a kernel of truth where in the Middle Ages, that's kind of all they could do if they wanted to survive. Uh, also left out, they couldn't own land, so they couldn't, you know, oh. really, they couldn't really uh, farm or anything like that either. In most cases, so it was a very challenging world, and Jews had to occupy the one niche that was left to them, and that unfortunately resulted in uh, a negative stereotype. And you often see um, in medieval art Jewish moneylenders with that huge nose and sort of uh, demonic-looking eyes, like you know, uh, so. Yeah. No, that's actually that's I'm so glad you expanded on that, because that was one thing I was curious about. Um, and that's another thing I was having a conversation with a friend the other day, and I was explaining how Jews uh, being involved in finances, in the Middle Ages and how it created the narrow stere uh, negative stereotype that you see, of course, in uh, pre-World War II Germany, this Jewish conspiracy of higher finance. And we were talking about, you know, like the mob violence against Jews in the Middle Ages. And I thought, you know, for so many common men or let's say upper class nobility or something to where if they do own a specific person who is Jewish money, how convenient it would be if that person was killed, you know? Yep. And so I thought that was it's very, very interesting how and especially how much of a role the Middle Ages and the horrible things, although not not constantly horrible, help create the foundations for one of the most vicious killing cycles in modern history. Um, yeah, I mean, you can sort of you can, you know, as academics today and, and most academics, when we go and we look at these documents, it's not it's obvious to us that they aren't, you know, based in reality. Yeah. But you can see someone who already is anti-Semitic opening up a text and saying, wow, this is from. 1144 and it says Jews kill Christian children and just automatically believing it at face value. I mean, so you can see how these sorts of medieval accusations wouldn't be that hard for someone to, yeah. you know, who's already anti-Semitic to just believe and then spread. And again, a lot of these same accusations are still present in places where there's anti-Semitic sentiment like you know, uh, Palestine today because of the complex uh, crisis there between Jews yeah. and Arabs. Absolutely. That is a conflict. I, I stay out of verbally whatsoever. It's way too complex for me to possibly, you know, comprehend, you know, me being an outsider like that. I can't I can't even fathom it. You know, that is interesting, though, regardless. Um, I would actually I'm actually really looking forward to doing another episode with you, if you allow on like the positive uh, relations. Like you said, I don't want to leave that out between Jews and Christians in the Middle Ages and even situations where Christians probably protected Jews. Oh, yeah. From other During, groups of people. Yeah. During the First Crusade, some Christians tried to protect their Jewish neighbors, uh, for example. There's a lot of the thing that I really like about doing that lecture is I like doing this one first, usually because people come away with the impression that Jews and Christians hate each other. And then I go and do that lecture and I describe all sorts of situations where that were common. That wouldn't make sense if that was always true. Like the fact that Christian women 
were commonly uh, wet nurses for Jewish families, for example. Like, if you really thought all Christians wanted to kill you, why would you have a Jewish wet nurse, for example? So things like that that are, you know, complicate this narrative considerably and show you that there were close relationships of a business, but even a friendship uh, variety uh, and some romance uh, between yes. Jews and Christians. So, <laughs> Of course, the big yeah. no-no of the Middle Ages, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. It's like I've told people in the past, like, you know, it's like you said, people can go away with thinking, wow, you know, like no one ever got along. It was all this vicious, killing, brutal persecution cycle. But it's like I tell people, you know, my best subject is actually the Third Reich and the history in World War Two and uh, the history of modern day Germany. I can't have a channel on that, unfortunately, censorship for good reason, kind of kicks stuff like that off of YouTube. So I try to focus on a little bit earlier, but uh, it's like I tell people, you know, there were people who were non-Jews throughout Nazi Germany that, you know, paid the ultimate price protecting certain minority groups against the powers that be, so to speak. And I always imagine that it had to, it couldn't have been that different in the middle ages, you know, certain people going beyond to protect the uh, persecuted or disliked people in their communities. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our presentation for today. A special thank you to Dr. Lackner for appearing on our show and taking the time to educate me and you about subjects involving the time periods that we all love. And as a disclaimer, I wanted to say that though this lecture focuses on the negative interactions between Christians and Jews in the Middle Ages, future episodes also by Dr. Lackner will not focus on just that. They will focus on the positive and good relationships between Jews and Christians in the Middle Ages. And honestly, I think that by studying these negative interactions and by studying these positive interactions, we can learn about the past, learn from the past, and create a better future with each other. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all so much for watching. Check out the links in the video description below for works written by Dr. Lackner, and also for books that he would recommend you read to have a better understanding on not just interactions between medieval Christians and Jews, but also on medieval anti-Semitism. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all so much, and have a wonderful night. Thank you.